0: Hey, Jake, how are you doing today? I'm good, Mike, how you doing? I'm excited, I've been waiting for a while to, to have this discussion with you. You've got so many people that have wanted to talk to you about different concepts, and I wanna to talk to you today a little bit about how you operate in extreme environments using mental toughness for self-mastery and goal achievement. But before oh, I sorry. do that, before I do that, Jake, I'm gonna just talk a little bit about what you do. Let me brag about you for a second, because you know, it was hard to pick out everything that you do, but I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the things you do. Cause Let's keep, it, it, short. Let's Let's keep it, it short and get to the gas. You know what I'm saying? Yes, sir. So Jake Swig is the director of player development for the University of Illinois in the Big Ten. So he's also a native of Stella Coombe, Washington, where he attended the Charles Wright Academy of Tacoma, and he was inducted into the Hall of Fame as a member of the 1989 state runner-up football team. Zweig has earned a Master's of Business Administration from the University of Michigan and a Bachelor's of Science degree in Computer Science from the U.S. Naval Academy. Now, before his Master's degree, Jake actually graduated from the the U.S. Naval Academy, and he was part of the Navy SEALs. So, we're talking to a SEAL, and just first and foremost, thank you so much for your service. Thank you. man, You're welcome.
1: We got to thank all the guys that are still serving, though. You know, at the end of the day, I did my time, but I thank them all the time, man. Thank you guys for allowing me not to have to pick a gun up and go to battle. (laughs) Amen to
0: that. Well, also, in 2011, Jake took a brief hiatus from football to accept the History Channel's invitation to compete in the television show Top Shot, and he was also on Dude, You're Screwed. Jake, tell me a little bit about those, because I think those are pretty important um experiences that relate to operating in extreme environments along
1: with the Navy Seals training. So you know it's interesting my first cut at TV was Top Shot and I quickly figured out that the whole TV industry is rigged for the most part, right? And you know the second day they gave us guns that didn't work and it was just real quick uh, evolution of my TV skills knowing that I had to control the environment the best way I could which was to operate a psychological warfare plan in the house to destroy everybody else's psychological uh, structure. So that's kind of what I did. Went off the reservation a little bit, moved outside, you know, had a great run at it. Awesome entertainment, right? Like, you watch it, I laugh at it. It It's comedy. But what really happened, you know, at the end of the day, I walked off the TV show because it was complete uh, fabricated nonsense. And then when I left, uh, the show got canceled. It lost 900,000 viewers on the next episode. Wow! So that allowed me to go into TV a little bit and get to do your screwed series, which was pretty awesome, actually. You know, we flew around the world, shot a bunch of different locations. It only really sucked if you had to go out, and I think <laughs> I went out three times. You know, I did great two times, and then I died on the on the Namibian desert. But hey, you know, it was a good experience. I lost a lot of weight. You know, I lost like twenty five pounds in the Namibian wow. desert. So that, it was awesome, but. You know, one of the things from season one to season two, I had to get in shape. You know, I had to go walk. I was walking like seven miles a day, um, for the second for the second episode or the second season, just because, you know, you had to be in shape mentally, and you can't be in shape mentally if you're physically out of shape. So that's very true. That was, that's one of the big things. You know, that I tightened up for the second season. The second season was good.
0: One of the things that I thought was really cool about uh, just watching you in action was you're you're an expert with the pistol and a rifle and apparently you're pretty good with the
1: bow and arrow too yes yeah, so, so you know i was a big garage sale kid and growing up in washington state you know every garage sale has fishing poles every garage sale has bow and arrow stuff so you know it was pretty incredible like i grew up i I still got the longboat to this day I had a little fiberglass bow that I started with, but then I bought a long bow for like 10 bucks at a garage sale. And every one of my arrows was different. Every one of them, every arrow was di- the metal, aluminum, wood. And so like, I knew how to shoot every arrow differently to get it to go where I wanted it to go. And then as I got older um, and I started using a compound bow and you have all the same arrows, I was like, oh my gosh, this is like a gun basically. like. So a lot of people don't know. I started shooting bow and arrow at probably five years old.
0: Wow, you were pretty young. But that's, yeah. where, they, that's where you start, right? You start, yeah. start them young. So the other thing about you is you've developed leaders using the dynamic leadership discovery program. Can you tell me just quickly a little bit about that?
1: Leadership discovery is an offshoot from the officer's uh, reaction course in the Army and the Marine Corps. I learned in the Marine Corps in the early 90s. And then when I got into corporate America, I pretty much did the hiring for my company. Um, At one point I was interviewing anybody that we had to hire, and I got it down to it was a consulting company, so my hours were billable. I got it down to no more than two-minute interview. And really what I was doing was, I wasn't listening to what they were saying, I was watching how their body reacted to my questions, how they handled stress, and a couple other indicators. But now I have a whole program and I can teach that, right? So I can come in and a full day's training, we're gonna watch a ton of video of people in action and we're really gonna focus on bad body language, bad body posture, negative body language, negative feelings towards a person exhibiting body body behaviors. And then from that, we're gonna paint a picture of their leadership capacity. Um, And then we're gonna, later on in the day, we'll put them in action. So we'll give them a 15 minute problem, three minutes, or I'm sorry, one minute of planning, I'm sorry. One minute of explanation, three minutes of planning, seven minutes of execution, three minutes of debrief. And during that whole time we're evaluating them. And so you just watch. And at the end of the training day, everybody gets the right answer and they're absolutely it's like like they just found a goose that laid a golden egg. But the big thing is once you've had the training, then you can apply it to hiring. You can apply it to like your workplace. So you may have an outlier in there that no one really kind of relates to, and you look at him like, man, that dude's a leader. You know, like I say all the time that the best leaders, are, they don't look like everybody else. They don't act like everybody else. They're on their own beat because they don't see the world like everybody else does. And that's why they're so rare. But they're not hard to find if you know what you're looking for and you know what they look like. And really, if you know what they don't look like is the key. So you eliminate a bunch of people. And then when you finally see a leader, they shine so brightly that you're like, oh, that's what they look like. That's one right there.
0: So oh, wow, that sounds yeah. awesome!
1: I want to definitely hear more about that as we as we move on. And I'll uh, I'll give you the link. I got a link to an article I wrote. that's pretty uh, pretty robust. So it takes you about three hours to go through the article. Ton of video. Like you get a good idea of exactly what you're getting uh, when I show up to do some training with you. That sounds good. I'm gonna
0: I at the end of this video after after we're all done we'll we'll put that up so that people can see that and check awesome. it out. Okay. All right. So let me get into the questions with you. Um, so how do you define mental toughness? And I know there's, you know, a textbook definition, but what's your definition of mental toughness?
1: So we did, I just had this conversation this morning. Like mental toughness is simple. It's your ability to endure pain. Right. And it might be physical pain. It might be mental pain, but at the end of the day, it's just pain. Right. And toughness is a result. If you're mentally tough, like right now, people ask me, Oh, you're mentally tough. I'm saying, No, not really. Like, if you ask me, in my opinion, on my scale, I'm pretty soft right now. You know, I was tough in the SEAL teams. I was tough in my 30s, but now I'm hitting almost 50s. It's a different beast up here, right? Now, mentally tough to work hard, I can work hard as anybody, right? Do 18, 20 hour days all season, right? But you ask me to go out and chop five cords of wood during the day. I gonna have a problem with that, you know? And that's, that's where I say mental toughness is really just your ability to endure pain. Physical toughness is, is coupled with it, right? If you're physically in shape, you can endure more physical pain, which allows you to be more mentally tough. And the other factor in that is just how many experiences have you had in your life? How gritty have you had to be, right? Like, you have a bunch of gritty experiences. You either do or you don't. If you don't have a bunch of gritty experiences, you have no bank of knowledge to know how far you can push yourself, how far you can't push yourself, what's capable, what's not capable, right? And so all of that stuff plays in there, but at the end of the day, it's just you know your ability to take pain. How much pain can you take? Now, let me ask you this. You, what
0: age would you say that you began developing mental toughness? Because I know we've had previous conversations and one of the things you talked about is, you're like, Mike, you know what? I developed mental toughness way before I even set foot into, you know, football or the Navy SEALs. So, what described to me kind of that journey? Like, how did that begin,
1: really? So, I grew up with my grandparents from age six months to about five years, five and a half years. And then my mother got married, and I didn't move out there until after kindergarten. So, I got a pretty good stepdad, and my stepdad's a hellion. Like, he's dead now, <laughs> but like, hmm, sorry. Um, he, he got a real checkered past but that dude knew how to work. And so, you know, I told people, man, like we didn't have heat in my house. We had a wood fired stove. And so those first couple of years, man, it was three cords of wood every summer. So we would get a 24 hour wood permit on Fort Lewis. And that meant you got to chop wood for 24 hours for fallen trees. We go out there like two in the morning and we would come off, off the wood permit at like midnight, 11 o'clock. And our whole driveway would be wood. And then the next day, we'd get up on Sunday, and we'd stack wood all day. And we'd have three, four cords of wood. And so I can remember being a kid. I had two malls, you know, the wedges that you put in. Uh, two uh, wedges, and I had one mall. And, like, I can remember I would chop, like, when I was little, I might get 15 pieces of wood done in a day. Like, literally, my, my pile had 30 pieces of chopped wood or 40 pieces of chopped wood. And my dad would have done, you know, three or four cords of wood. And then as I got older, that pile started to grow, you know. And then by the time I got into high school, we had a a furnace then. So we weren't chopping as much wood. And then he started buying wood, right? We were doing a little bit better in the house. But early on, man, like we got a 200-foot rock wall in front of my house that I carried every rock probably 50 yards from the backyard where the dump truck dropped dropped all the rocks off down our driveway and I wheeled a wheelbarrow down I had to do five wheelbarrows a day for a whole summer you know and that wheelbarrow made like at first I tried to load the wheelbarrow with rocks I was like probably 11 and I couldn't you know like it would fall over so I ended up having to take like two rocks and I remember the first day I wheeled like Call it 10 rocks down there, right? Like five loads, I had to do five loads a day of two rocks. My dad got home and said, hey, where are all the rocks at? I said, well dad, I, I can only get two in a wheelbarrow. He said, man, I want a full wheelbarrow. Like two rocks doesn't count. And I was like, mm. okay. So, you know, what's, what do you gotta do, right? All of a sudden, you know, I look, I look, I'm like, man, it's 10 rocks to a wheelbarrow. So now instead of making five wheelbarrow trips, I'm making 20, wow. right? So that I can get, or I'm making 50 wheelbarrow trips. I'm talking about all morning. I'm moving rocks. Wow, you know. And so, like, you can't not be mentally tough and not, you know, like I'm moving. I'm 50 wheelbarrows, 50 50 yards. Granted, they only got two rocks, but I'm 10 years old. Sure. You know? And so it was stuff like that, you know, like around my house, our water main broke. It's probably 70 feet to the to the water to the water pipe in the street, right? Right. We didn't call a plumber. We went out there and dug ditch for two days straight, like four feet down in clay. Wow. And, you know, like I dug and moved dirt. And, you know, he did most of the work because I was little. But, like, that's how stuff got fixed around my house, you know. And then we ran trap lines. We trapped coons all winter, tra- raccoons, beavers, muskrats. So you in a boat, you know, you floating around in the, in the swamp. You know, I'd have to go trek my my town trap line every day after school. So, like, all of that stuff, you know. And then he made me go play in the rain all the time. It'd be pouring down rain. He'd be like, hey, go outside and play. Put my boots, my rain stick on, and be out in the rain for three hours, you know.
0: I could see how that kind of relates to, you know, as you move forward in your life, dealing with, you know, with underwater demolitions and things like that. I mean, it's like he was preparing you, but you didn't know it. And maybe he didn't know it either.
1: No, he knew it. Like, no, he, he he'll he'd tell you all the time he was trying to raise a really tough kid, you know, like yeah. that, was his, that was his thing, right? Like, he knew I was going to be successful in life because he would say, you're going to college, you're going to graduate, you know, you're going to be really successful, but you got to be tough, you know. And I'll tell this story. This is one for you. So, um, my freshman year of high school, I hadn't lost a wrestling match in almost two years, okay. So, I came into wrestling. I was a fat little four foot hundred and and forty pound kid. You know, I wasn't a very good athlete. I didn't run every day. I just was a really good wrestler, but I had asthma real bad, so I couldn't. I couldn't do good. I got my butt beat my freshman year. Mm. So about halfway through the season, man, the uh, seniors Larry, Larry Nelson, and Kurt uh, Kramer, my um, guy Kramer, and Mike Valentine, they started beating me up every day. And I'm talking about, like, real WWF, DDT. Like I'm getting smashed. So I'm like, man. So it went on for about three weeks. And I, I was talking to my friends. We were all freshmen. I said, yo, I don't care what happens today. Like, I'm smashing some people. <laughs> so I hid in the bathroom, man. And, and the first guy that came, I think it was Mike Valentine. And he was more of my size. And I snuck him right in the head. And then he was on the ground. And I was kicking him. And I was like, yo, this is crazy, man. Y'all ain't beating me up no more. So then, fast forward, Kramer and Larry Nelson came in. They were big dudes. They were both 190-pounders, man. I went at them like a savage animal, and then they stopped beating me up. And I didn't really think nothing of it. Right. Fast forward about 15 years, and my guy Larry Nelson, who's one of the biggest characters in Silicon High School history, they said, hey, man, Larry's back in town. He's working up at Safeway in the produce section. So I was like, man, I'm going to see Larry. And I saw him and I said, Larry, what's up, man? And he said, Jake, and I said, hey, why were you beating me up my freshman year, man? He said, yo, your dad caught us after school and said, beat him up until he fight back. What? Yeah, my Whoa. mouth was like, what? I said, you're, you're not, you're lying. He said, no, your dad came up, caught us after practice one day and said, hey, man, beat his butt until wow. he's, back. he's soft. Wow. So, I talked to Larry for about 15 minutes in the produce session. I got in the car. I went home to my dad, and I said, Dad, man, do you know how traumatic of an event that was? He laughed at me. He said, ha, <laughs> ha, it worked, didn't it? Mental toughness. How do you, how do you
0: develop mental toughness in, your, in those that you coach? So how do you develop in your players?
1: So mental toughness is a, is a process, right? No one gets mentally tough overnight. No one gets hard overnight. You know, you got to start where they are. You know, if they soft as butter, you got to put them in the freezer for six months, right? Harden the butter up. Then you got to take the butter out of the free refrigerator and put it in the freezer. Harden it up some more, right? It could be, I mean, shoot, some kids, I mean, it's an 18-month process to get them to a functional level of toughness. Like to play my sport, football, right? Like it comes back to you got to look for the right kids in the process, you know, but at the end of the day, like you're going to have kids that come in that need to be developed. and. You know, you start off, get them to do a little bit extra, get them to set goals, get them to want to be a little bit better. They get a little bit better. They see success. They come back. They reevaluate their goals. It's just a process. It's a, it's a weekly process of them to set goals, achieve goals. You know, a, week, a monthly process, a weekly process, and then, you know, six months from now you got a different kid. A year from now you got a different kid. You know, a year and a half from now you got a really different kid. Now, the faster they get the process of goal attainment, right, goal achievement, the faster they're able to develop. But it's different for everybody, you know. I think everybody can can develop a level of toughness and mental toughness, you know, but some kids ain't mentally tough. And they're never going to be great at it, you know. So it goes back to you got to look for it in the process. Now, how do you, how have you utilized this with leaders
0: in the, you know, that you deal with? How do you determine, you know, how do you really
1: assess their mental toughness and help them get stronger? So I don't really assess mental toughness as much as I assess grit. The whole underlying factor of all of my leadership stuff is I'm going to hire people that exhibit positive leadership traits that are capable. I'm never going to hire a qualified person based on credentials ever right now. There's certain positions where they got to have a certain understanding of right qual- like their their capabilities got to match kind of the job. Right and at the end of the day, if they're not capable, I'm never going to hire them. Right, because capable people always overcome; they always find a way to get around something. You know, there are no roadblocks to a capable person, and that's kind of my deciding line where I draw the line with my leaders. Right, all of my leaders got to be capable people. You can't have Qualified people that are uncapable in leadership positions because then they only have their experiences to go on to solve problems. And my whole thing with leadership is a leader's whole job is to look into the future, see problems, take corrective action now so that those problems don't manifest themselves in the future. And if you're not capable, you have a hard time looking into the future and seeing anything because you're always looking in the past as a qualified person trying to analyze what happened before and how you can apply that to the future.
0: Okay. That makes sense. Now, as far as like um, when you're dealing with grit or mental toughness, what do you do when when you're faced with these situations? How do you operate in high, you know, extreme environments with that mental, you know, the critical mind going off on you? So I think, you
1: know, this is one of the things I learned in the SEAL teams, that was just absolutely awesome, right? The more you bleed and train, the less you bleed in battle. And basically, if you're training at a million miles an hour, when you actually get in the game, things will slow down for you, right? Because, like, in the game, like, my players always say, Coach, the game is so much easier than practice is with you, right? Like, when I'm the special teams coordinator, it's always the same feedback. Practice is maybe the hardest thing I do, and then the games is easy right? That's how you want it to be. So practice fast, right? Go hard. Um, Make sure I, you know, this generation is really big on digital learning. So I literally try to send everything to their phones. I don't do a lot of talking in front of them. I don't do a lot of, you know, meeting time and stuff like that because it's not really functional for them. So we send a lot of stuff to their phones, you know, and practice fast, get them, you know, tuned up shorter, high intensity, fast, maybe not so much hitting intensity, but just speed wise intensity. One of the things that I also notice about you is you've, you've never
0: been afraid to put yourself into uncomfortable situations. Um, like you gave the example of, you know, the situation when you were in high school and how you were dealing with bullies, right? So that's yep. one, one example. Or Top Shot, and the different shows that you were on, you were in some really extreme environments where it wasn't just about your physical body. It was more so about how you problem solve. So how do you, you know, how do you teach that to
1: these, to to your people? So, you know, one of the most kind of monumental things that my dad used to do, he wouldn't answer any questions, which was really interesting to me. So, like, if you asked him a question, why is the sky blue? His first response was, why do you think the sky is blue? And what happened was you weren't allowed, like – you stopped asking questions until you really got down to something that you were trying to figure out, right? So, like, if I hey man, why is the sky blue? And then you would think about it, man, the sky's blue because space must be blue, right? And then you go to your dad, I go to my dad, I'll be like, hey dad, you know, why is the sky blue? And he'd be like, What do you why do you think the sky is blue? And I said, Well, you know, I think space is blue. And he said, Okay. He said, Well, he says it's a little different. He said, you know, the atmosphere refracts. Right, the sunlight that's coming in from the sun and it refracts it at a frequency that's blue. And you'd be like, oh, okay. And so then when you got asked, why is the sky blue? You weren't just saying something that you got told. You had thought about why is the sky blue? And now you have something to, to say it. And so what would happen is when you got into situations, it would be more so like, okay, well, how can I get out of this situation? What do I need to do? What correct action do I need to take? to, like I said, as a leader does, prevent failure in the future, right? Right. And that's where it came from. Like, my dad, my dad never answered a question. I tell the story. Like, I, I first started driving, so I got my driver's license, and I came home. I was thinking I was going to go drive the car, and he was like, no, you got to take all the wheels off the car. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, you got to be able to change the tire, so take all the wheels off the car. I was like, all right. So I went out there. Got the jacks out the garage, jacked the car up, took all the wheels off. He's like, all right, great. Put all the wheels back on. So put all the wheels back on. He's like, all right, you can drive now. And then I crashed it in the back of his, in the back of his truck because I forgot to put the clutch in. So, but like that's how he taught me things, right? And then maybe six months later, I needed to redo the brakes on it. And he's like, all right, go fix the brakes. He didn't tell me how, he didn't say anything. Five hours later, I had the whole wheel taken apart, the hub, the brakes, everything. And he came out, and he said, man, what's taking you so long? I said, man, I'm trying to take, fix the brakes. He was like, all right, let me show you. But I had spent five hours, I had the whole right wheel of the car off, everything, all the way down to the bearings. And he wow. showed me, you know, take these two bolts out right here, get the C-clamp, push the plunger back in, reset the brakes, put them back on, put them two bolts back on. And I kind of looked at him like, yo, are you serious? Like you had me out here for five hours for something that would take me 15 minutes. But at the end of the day, what he was really teaching me was problem solving skills. Right. And that's why I say like a lot of people think you can learn leadership and all this other stuff. You got to have a baseline understanding of how to solve problems. What problems look like it doesn't come naturally to people to be able to solve problems. And I know, I know why I got it. Cause my dad hammered me on it you got to be able to think, he would always say, you better be able to think your way out of bad situations. So So that's how
0: you, that's how you teach your players and and those that you lead, you teach them how to use their mind to solve problems. So would you say that
1: like, as far as being, Oh, um, let me, let me quantify that. Sure. Sure. I only select leaders that have that capacity. Right. Right. I don't select leaders that don't have that capacity. If okay. you can't problem solve with me, you have no position of leadership in my organization, period. That makes sense. That's your number one job. And I can't tell you what the problem is going to be, right? Right. 20 years ago, you telling me you knew what Amazon's problems were going to be? You you don't. But they got problem solvers. So they're able to solve them and they're able to recover and, you know, make course adjustments. Look at Blockbuster. Probably a whole bunch of great leaders, right? Out of business. True. Yep. Right? So, Why is that? Because you had a bunch of qualified people in charge. You didn't have capable people that could foresee in the future, take corrective action now, and prevent bad things from happening to your organization. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. So what would you say is your
0: greatest accomplishment as a coach?
1: Man, like, I'll be honest with you. My greatest accomplishment is just simply building champions for life, right? When I get a phone call from a guy that I coached back in 05, and he's running a huge investment company now, or I get a, a call from a kid that was failing out of school, and now he's a cop in Riverside, California, killing life. You know, those are my accomplishments, right? Like, my personal accomplishments don't mean much to me, right? They just don't. Like, I'm on to the next one right now. Like, I'm going to win a Division One National Championship. That's the next one on my list. When I get that, like, I'm going to be on to being a U.S. Senator. I'm not worried about the last accomplishment that I've got, I'm worried about how, why can I spread the knowledge that I have? How many people can I influence through my mentor and mentee network that I've been prosperously growing for the last 20 years? And, you know, the last probably five years, I've really been pressed hard on making more mentors. So I'm really training my really good mentees how to be mentors because I need to magnify the goodness that I'm giving to people, you know, because a lot of people don't get it, right? A lot of people don't get goal setting. They don't get, you know, they don't understand what a goal looks like. They don't understand how that daily motivation works. When you wake up at 4.30 in the morning, it's hard to have a bad day. It's hard because you, you're you motivated. And yes. when you go from 4.30 to 6.30 working on only you for two hours, right? Like, you can't lose. Like, 12 o'clock comes around and you've already been at work for 10 hours.
0: Exactly. You know? The biggest, the biggest and most important work is the work, like you said, that you're doing, with your mind in the time that you're taking for yourself to build yourself up
1: before you build others. Up. You know, it's interesting. When I went to all the leadership deals with the NCAA, they would always say you got to spend an hour, hour a day on yourself. Mm-hmm. You step back and you're like, man, an hour a day. And then I look at when I'm doing an hour a day or two hours a day. And I look at when I'm not far more successful when I'm spending that hour, you know, and now I got a whole family and that kind of really changes a lot of things because I got a responsibility to raise some kids and be a good husband. So, you know, my time isn't always my time. But I know this, my kids don't get up until 6 o'clock. So if I get up at 430, I got an hour and a half to burn trees on both ends to, to, to make some good firewood. You know what I'm saying? <laughs>
0: I hear you on that one. Now, my last question for you, Jake, is this. What are the top books that you'd recommend for personal development for anyone that's seeking to develop, you know, self-mastery and to just achieve a higher level of optimal performance?
1: So I'll start with my first book. Um, So I'm big on goal setting, right? I got goal setting in the seventh grade. I started setting goals then, been very uh, successful with goal setting, goal achievement, right? But I've turned down some incredible opportunities, opportunity to work for Oprah Winfrey, I've turned down an NFL opportunity. I've turned down some awesome opportunities staying true to my goals. And so I just recently read this book called Overachievement. It's absolutely awesome because it says, look, go where the most opportunity is. And it will lead you back to your goal faster than if you just stay locked in. I'm a football coach. I have to stay a football coach. And so that book is huge. The next one that I just read that was absolutely phenomenal is Relentless. By Tim Glover, you know, an awesome book on just what the best look like, what Kobe Bryant does differently, what Michael Jordan does differently, right? What the best do differently, how they're wired differently, right? Remember what I told you, the best leaders in the world look different than everybody else in the world because they are different. They think differently. They see stuff differently than everybody else does. That book highlights that those differences and allows different people like me to be able to say, okay, that is a positive trait that I have, that I have a tenacity to just work through anything. You know, I call it brute force. Anytime things get bad, I just go to brute force. Start working 25 hours a day, and I'll fix those problems within two or three months. It's just how it works. And so those two books are awesome. And then the last one is my ringer. So... I think to be really good, you got to have a perspective on life. And to really understand who you are as a person, you got to be able to understand who other people are. So my next one comes out of left field. It's called Next of Kin. It's okay. about chimpanzees that know American Sign Language. And the book is absolutely life-changing from the standpoint that you'll never look at an animal again the same way because those chimps are talking like 400 words and communicating in a way that you are like, that's not possible. But then when you Google it, you can watch them and you can watch the conversations and then you realize like, oh my God, that chimp is the same as me. He just lacks the ability to talk. That's the only difference really. And then, you know, the more you read the book, you're like, this isn't possible. And you flip between YouTube, now you got YouTube, right? And you're, you're going back and forth, and you're like, oh, my God. Like, this chimp has been locked up in a testing facility, a pharmaceutical testing facility, for 10 years. Hasn't seen this guy in 10 years. And the first thing he says is, Joey, get me out of here. They're sticking me with needles every day. Help. Mm-hmm. And he's with Jane Goodall, right? He said he broke down and started crying. He was there to give them a, a, a positive check on their chimp behavior, and Jane Goodall said, what'd he say to you? He she was crying. He said, man, chimp just told me, hey, Joey, they're sticking me every day, man. It's awful. I live in this little cage. Jane Goodall said, really? He said, yep. She said, let's go. And they raised enough money to get every chimp out of research facilities across America. Wow. So Jane Goodall wrote a negative letter to the pharmaceutical company, to all the labs, and they got all the chimpanzees out of all the testing and pharmaceutical testing facilities in the country, right? But it took a monkey, or I'm sorry, a chimpanzee, a primate, to sign to a guy, yo, I'm getting killed in this cage, right? So when you think about the relevance of of that statement, how does that affect you when somebody on your team is having a bad day, right? How do you look at that person and you think back to this chimpanzee that was locked in a cage for 10 years, getting stuck with needles every day? Right. How do you relate with empathy to somebody that had their mother or father killed? Right. Or a small child. You know, I just took on this this new awesome project that I got. Young lady in Davenport, Iowa contacted me on Instagram. We kind of built up a little conversation and I was like, man, this there's a lot of depth to this person. And the more I dug, the more I was like, yo, this person could be anything. And she wants to be a nurse, but she got four kids. She got an eight-week-old. She's not in a bad situation. She's making it. But with a little bit of help, she can be so much better. Right? Right. If I didn't read Next to Ken, that awesome book on chimpanzees talking, I may not be as empathetic to her situation. Right? I may right. look at her as just another number that she didn't pan out. But the more I learn, the more I hear about her upbringing, she just needs to learn how to do it. She's going to be a rock star. I guarantee you in the next four years, she's a full RN she has a whole different outlook on life. It may take her a little bit longer to buy a house, but I guarantee you in the next seven, eight years, she's going to buy a house. But right now I'm raising six to $7,000 and I'm going to buy her a used Toyota Sienna and we're going to get her on her feet. She doesn't have a vehicle right now. So I got to go fund me for that, you know? And that all comes out of reading a book about chimpanzees using sign language and having a lot of empathy for people and other men. You know what I mean?
0: Right. Right, the um, I'm gonna make sure to put the GoFundMe on the video. So at the end of this, anyone that's viewing, please go to the Go GoFundMe and fund that account.
1: Yeah, and just get, you know, hey man, all I'm asking for is a Big Mac. My Big Mac campaign is working awesome. If you give me two dollars, I'm winning. Right, we're not trying to raise five hundred thousand. We're trying to raise six thousand bucks. I think we're at like three thousand dollars right now. So we're about halfway there. I got two good vehicles in mind. We'll see if they're still there. If not, I'll find one, right? About six, dollars $7,000. I'm going to get her a used Toyota Sienna with about 180,000 miles on it. It'll run for another four or five years. it probably run for another seven or eight years, provided with good quality transportation. In that time, I can get her back on her feet, get her RN license, get all the other stuff taken care of. She'll have enough income to get her own vehicle, whatever she wants. But, like, all that comes out of a book about some chimpanzees needing some help getting out of a cage.
0: You wow. Know? Yeah, that's, I'm, I didn't even know anything about that book. I'm going to, I'm going to check that book out myself. Well, all of them, but specifically that one, that sounds like it's pretty interesting. The connections that you made with that. So Jake, where can we find you besides, you know, on Facebook, you know, where, where can we find you? Where are you? Where do you hang out mostly socially
1: as far social, as on Instagram? I mean, social media wise? Like, you know, I got this new campaign. I'm working on um, Instagram. It's just Jake's wig, 1911. If you Google Jake Wig Instagram, you're going to find me, Jake's Swig Twitter. It's all going to be the same thing. You know, I encourage you to follow me on LinkedIn. Um, I got a little bit longer content coming out on LinkedIn. And then most of my talks or my goal setting stuff is up on YouTube because we're trying to streamline it so that we can feed it to the players digitally instead of me talking to them for 40 minutes. So um, all of that stuff is going up on YouTube. You know, I'm, I'm probably the easiest person in America to get a hold of because I'm always sending my email or my, my uh, cell phone number out on the internet, because I laugh. People are like, yo, you don't have crazy people calling you? I said, come on, man, it ain't no really crazy call me. I call people, <laughs> I Like, crazy people are scared to call me, because I, I send people to come visit them. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jake, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me
0: today. And um, man, just keep doing what you're doing, making a difference in the community making a difference in people's lives. I mean, you are truly a transformational leader. And uh, again, thank you and all the SEALs for their service.
1: All right. Awesome, Mike, man. Appreciate the time, man. Thank you for having me on it, man. Awesome. Uh, Bye bye.